The Athletic. The Race F1 Tech Show, brought to you by Aramco. Gary explains F1's latest flexi-wing controversy, explains why porpoising won't go away, and answers your questions on engines, running repairs, and part sharing. Welcome to another edition of the Race F1 Tech Show, brought to you by Ramco. I'm Ed Straw, and joining me as always is a man who has been there and done that over half a century in and around F1, Gary Anderson. Gary, how's life with you? Life's good, yeah. Sun's shining. It's um, a very uh, nice day, to be honest. So I can't complain about that at all. Um, got plenty to do, unfortunately, or fortunately. Um, so just keep on, keep on going. Just stay out of the sunshine. I always think you may be retired from Formula One teamwork, but you're probably uh, about 90% as busy as you were in, uh, in your F1 days, even in uh, your, your so-called retirement. Well, I do. I try to keep myself pretty busy. I um, do quite a lot of stuff for various little projects here and there, but not really in, in uh, Formula One because Formula One's become now one of these things where the, the teams are just so big that they cover everything themselves. Um, some teams cover it well, some teams don't cover it quite so well. But um, it's always interesting because you, you sort of look at it and think, what would I do in that set of circumstances? You know, because that's all you've got. You know, you've got your, your, your past experience to relate. So what would I do in that set of circumstances? And that's the interesting thing, I think, looking at it from the outside, having been on the inside. Yeah, it's certainly, well, I was going to say unique perspective, but there's very few people who have that perspective, let's put it that way, which is why it's always uh, interesting. But as always, for our first topic of conversation, the floor is open for you to talk about topic or topics of your choice. So what's on your mind from the world of F1 tech right now? Well, I think technically, um, I think we should have a little chat about the the porpoising coming back in, at, uh, in Monza. And also, I think... Um, teammates and uh, and the internal battle in the team would be interesting so starting off with the porpoising you know um mons is a very different circuit in its own way because obviously most of the cars there ran a lot lower down force some didn't but not quite so low but some really did push the the extremes at, at monza um ferrari was one of them obviously they set their car up very very focused on monza because it is their home race and and rightly so and they, they, you know, they brought brought home a good result with pole position in third and third and fourth in the race was a was a pretty pretty reasonable result. Um, McLaren also ran with a low down force set, and as did Alfatori, and uh, and and obviously uh, Williams. But as I say, with that comes other problems, and porpoising is one of them. Because I've said many times in in my book, the the one of the Red Bull's big advantages on the straight line speed is when they run a decent amount of downforce. The upper wing influences the beam wing. The beam wing influences the floor. And the more you can influence the floor, the more consistent the floor will be. But also, when you um, open the DRS, do you have a sort of threefold drag reduction? Now, the floor itself is very efficient um, in, in producing downforce. You know, probably something in the region of 8 or 10 to 1, which is way better than the, the upper rear wing, which is around about 3, 3.5 three to 1. Um but at the end of the day, you know, um, if you can make it all work together, then while you have the, the, the wing, the upper wing shut, because you're generating a reasonable amount of downforce from it, um, the, the, the underflow will be working substantially better. Um, whereas if you do run a very small upper wing, then suddenly you're not influencing the beam wing or the underfloor as much. So the, uh, the underfloor airflow separation problems appear earlier. Because there's not there's not the influence there to, to actually drag the airflow through underneath the car. It just gives up earlier, basically. Just can't cope with that. Um, so I saw quite a lot of the on the on the Ferrari really, because obviously we saw quite a lot of Ferrari in Italy, as you as you'd expect. And especially down from Ascari to uh, to the old Parabolic, as it, called, it used to be called. You know, you you could see a lot of bouncing. And there's some occasions where I thought you know Carlos Sainz's head was going to fall off. I mean, it really was quite bad. I think Lando Norris has been complaining about about his back, um, and you know all that does go through your spine. But it has got to a point, you know, now where the FIA introduced a you know maximum um, acceleration, um, probably a fairly difficult set of uh, numbers to equate because it's acceleration over time, over part of a lap, or blah blah blah. You know, make it as complicated as possible so nobody understands it. Um, and 
it, that, so that should be controlled. But basically, if the drivers are complaining about getting, you know, the spine getting beaten up, then those numbers are not correct. So they need to be they need to be revised. Um, but you know, again, it's the same old thing. The team should be in control of that situation themselves. However, the team will always go for the best performance. And as we know that it's been very difficult for the teams to predict porpoising. So I imagine whenever they're going for the best performance around a place like Monza, that uh, you know that's about drag efficiency, um, downforce levels, blah blah blah, and they don't have a clue about the porpoising until they hit the track. So they got the best setup in the car for the best perf- lap time, but porpoising just becomes a, a byproduct of that that setup. So it's coming back, and I wouldn't be surprised to see. Well, if the FIA, you know, look like they did last year, look at it closely, I wouldn't be surprised to see them changing that set of numbers. Now, the, the thing is that when you get to higher downforce tracks, as we're going to from here on in, in this season, the the influence from the, the upper wing will have more influence on the floor, so the porpoising should theoretically get a little bit better. But um, I'm not saying that it'll just disappear. I think it's just inevitable that anything that's producing downforce because of a surface close to the ground, it will always run the risk of um, airflow separation problems. So, you know, I think the, uh, the, the, uh, the jury's out on this one as to who's going to step in and fix it, whether it's the teams or the FIA. But uh, if the drivers start moaning about their spines, then obviously the FIA might have to look at it again. And so we move on to, to drivers, you know. It's one of these sort of situations where if you have a clear number one and number two, you don't have a problem. And you know, whether you like it or whether you don't, right at the moment, Red Bull are in that enviable position. They've got Max Verstappen, who is who has earned his clear number one status, and Sergio Perez, who is a competent driver, um, but seems to struggle now and again, definitely more often than Max. So that's that's that gets you the dividing line between the two the two guys being uh, a on the same piece of track at the same time, and b uh, the old telephone call coming through the headset to say, you know, take it easy here, you know. So they don't have that problem. However, you move on a little bit further to, and again, you can take Mercedes with, with Hamilton and Russell. You can take Ferrari with Leclerc and Saints. You can take McLaren with Piastri and Norris. You can look at quite a few of the teams and, and take their two drivers as being of reasonably equal status as opposed to a clear number one and number two. Now, Mercedes obviously have you know, in theory, should have a number one and a number two, but they're you know as a team they're in a bit of turmoil this year, so I'm not sure they they know how to do that really. But as we saw at Monza, you know, between Leclerc and Saints and that, or between Saints and Leclerc, I suppose you could should call it in those last couple of three laps, uh, it was a bit dodgy. Um, so when you get two drivers that are in equal competition going to end up side by side on the track at some point in time, um, it's always very difficult to police, and you know. The reality of it is some specific, some, uh, something needs to be laid down before you go to a meeting, to a, a, a Grand Prix. You can't do it on, at that time at the Grand Prix. You need to lay something down about when you would make decisions relative to positions. Because you, know, you can be battling, in the, uh, battling for position mid-race just because you're using a different strategy. If that happens, then when those two strategies are laid out in the, in the pre-race meetings... You need to make sure that the the drivers both know that you know driver X might be coming through um, after five laps or something after you've changed your tires because he's on a different strategy, and it will all f- unfold near the end of the race. And then you sort of it's very unlikely that anybody will change tires in the last ten laps of a race, or the last certain percentage of a race. So you say whatever's whoever's in, in front at that point in time, you know that would that's the that's the finishing order. And as I say, it's, it's exactly the same with, with Norris and Piastri. You know, that was about coming out of the pits and, and um, getting a little bit too excited about trying to stave off your teammate. Um, and, you know, they actually, you know, bank wheels, which is never good because it's so easy to damage the suspension and these things. So I think, you know, prior to the race, you need to make sure you have a, a defined set of regulations that you're going to in, 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 um, inflict on the drivers during, that, during the race. And depending upon the strategy, then you might move it around a little bit. But um, yeah, I when you always, when you got two teammates, obviously it's very good for scoring good points in the constructors if they're both quick. 
but it's also very good for losing as many points in the constructors when, they, when they're battling with each other and wipe each other out. We didn't see that in Monza, but it was pretty close. Well, I'm sure it brought back memories of Argentina 97 and Fisichella and Ralph Schumacher. But there was one extra dimension to that McLaren one, because obviously the reason that was happening was Piastri was obviously quite keen to get back past because he'd run ahead in the first stint of Norris and Norris obviously passed him because he got the one lap undercut. But that was a decision made by the team because Alonso had pitted before both of them. He pitted on lap 21 and he was posing an undercut threat. So they felt it was logical to do Norris first, then Piastri to defend the, the McLaren position because contrary to what what some uh, of the more uh, animated uh, fans on social media might think, teams, for the most part, don't really mind if it's, if it's one driver in front of the other. It's the two cars that matter. Do you think that a team should avoid that kind of situation or does it surprise you that this happens every now and again that when there is a situation specific one when they have to go out of order if you like and this and uh, the second car pits first and you risk the swap do you think that, that just gets overlooked in that it's not there in the plan it's like sometimes this will happen yeah i mean it, it's obviously not there in the big plan because you're risking you know how the race unfolds depends upon who you're racing with and obviously in that case you know racing with alonso as such you may have to react to his um, his strategy. So, you know, it, it's okay to change what you're doing, but you have to be, um, you know, defined about it. You have to get on the radio and say, this is the way it is, this is the reason. So, you know, the driver needs to believe in what he's hearing, that's it, and not let his own self-interest overcome, uh, you know, the team, because the team's bigger than a driver. At the end of the day, it's... Uh, it's, it's just making those decisions, but you have to make them black and white. I didn't hear anything from Ferrari on that case. You know, much they, they seem a bit woolly as far as saying anything. I think, you know, genuinely, I do think they would like Leclerc to finish ahead of Saints. Internally, they'd like that, but they're not going to throw away, you know, Saints finishing ahead of Leclerc just for the sake of it. But they're not, go- they're not going to jump in and, and stop it potentially happening. Um, which would be, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a fine line between where you, how you fit in in the team. So, But what you've got to do is make sure that there's somebody there that can always say, this is what you do and do it. Um, difficult when you're going out the pits like Piastri was there with Norris because at that point in time, I don't think Piastri or Norris would have known what was going on. It was too too soon. It was only, what, 20 seconds or something after he'd stopped, um, if it is even that. So that was... To me, that was definitely a driver, a driver trying to be more uh, assertive than, the, than his teammate, and that that's never a good situation. That's the time whenever the drivers have got to read it themselves um, and and go for survival. You know, sometimes it's better to just give up a position than end up in the hedge just because you've touched wheels. Yeah, and I certainly understand why Oscar Piastri was keen to get back ahead, and as Andrea Stella, the team principal, said that. Piastri probably just slightly misjudged the grip level available on fresh hard so just one of those things but it was interesting with Ferrari because obviously they were given the instruction to race but with no risks and I did ask Fred Vasseur after the race said well didn't look to me a great deal like that came under the the heading of of no risks what they were doing where do you stand on it and he quite wisely didn't want to answer that and said I don't want to get into polemics they both finished that's fine but I do wonder if that approach is a little bit dangerous because you can take an all's well that ends well approach but then it happens again and again and eventually it's not going to end well is it and it might if say McLaren don't crack down on it now which which they have done the next time it happened it could be when there's more than an eighth place at stake for example Yes, I mean, you know, it's, it's like anything, isn't it? It's, it will just escalate a little bit because it'll be the feeling between the two drivers that, well, I remember what you did to me last time, so I'm going to be Mr. Difficult here. Just pay one back because, you know, at the end of the day, a racing driver's a racing driver. His job is to get the best result possible for him. Um, on, on As far as he's concerned, on the side of that, so was the, the teams there as well. But whenever it comes, you know, as you move up to near the near the front end, the um, the driver's own priority steps in a little bit harder. So, yeah, for seventh and eighth or something, you might just sort of say, okay, it'll be all right. But if it's second and third, or as with Leclerc and Saints, third and fourth, the pressure to just make sure you beat your teammate is just that little bit better, a little bit higher. Um, and we always say, you know, the first thing you've got to do to prove your, your worth is beat your teammate. So you're never going to have make it stop 
But what uh, what I've said earlier on in this thing is that that's one of, another one of the enviable positions that that Red Bull are in. They shouldn't get to that position because Sergio Perez should know where he stands. Uh, Max for Verstappen definitely knows where he stands. And as far as the calls from the pit walls concerned, it would always be towards Max getting the best out of it. Unless you know, unless Sergio's ahead of him and there's a car between them. That's the big thing you got to try and do. You know, if you've if you've got a situation, you need to have a car between you and the guy that you're you're sort of fighting with. If it was Saints, Verstappen, Leclerc, then let Leclerc do all the fighting he wants. You know, against Verstappen. But um, if you don't have a car between you and it's just you two going for it, then then you definitely need to uh, to have some responsibility for the performance of the team. And it's just one of the great things in Formula One, isn't it? For all the data and the technology and the design work and all these things, it's always two drivers in the car for your team and you can never entirely control them. So I'm sure that's another topic that's going to come up again and again for as long as Grand Prix racing happens. Let's move on to our main topic, because for this weekend's Singapore Grand Prix, the FIA is having its latest clampdown on flexible bodywork with the issue of a new technical directive. Before we get into the detail of that, Gary, why are flexi wings such a persistently controversial topic in F1? Well, um, flexi wings, it's, it's one of these sort of situations. Obviously, the regulations call for the fact that I think it's 3.2.2 that um, all components you know, influence air, the car's aerodynamic performance to be rigidly mounted, blah, 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 blah. You'll never have a varying load component rigid. It can't be rigid. Uh, There's part of the underfloor under the the driver's legs, the bib as we call it, where that can flex. It's actually on a spring and a damper. And that's mainly because, you know, if you go over a curb and it hits the ground hard, you can definitely not do the driver's spine any good. So that's acceptable. Everybody has a, a bib system that can move, and there's a direct load test on it that has to withstand. So that's there for for safety reasons. But the other three components, really, I suppose that you might call it, that are influential to the car's performance is the front wing, the rear wing, um, and the floor si- edges, the floor sides. Those three are the things that you need that can influence the car's actual out and out performance, and and also the mounting system for them. So in other words, the, you know, the front wings mounted on the nose. Um, the the rear wings mount on the rear crash structure, and you know the sides of the floor are a long overhang overhung piece of carbon. There you are allowed to stay there, so you know all of that stuff has to be tested, and there is a set of load tests for the from the FIA to actually see if the the loads that they apply, if the wing withstands all of that, the wings and the floor withstand all that. So it it should be okay, but from what I see on TV. Some cars don't comply really with 3.2.2, which is rigid, uh, or even the degree of rigid rigidness. So this is what the, the FIA are, are sort of clamping down a little bit. They're saying, yes, you might pass all the load tests, but we have this catch-all, which says everything's got to be rigid, and we're going to start to enforce that a little bit more. Well, this is the fundamental problem, isn't it? There's the load tests. There's also the general rule that basically says things can't flex, and then there's also the laws of physics, which mean there has to be some flex or you'll have yeah. brittle parts. So that's why this is, I guess, such a persistent grey area, isn't it? Because you have to allow something and then you allow the teams that little bit of degree of freedom. And then people like yourself, as soon as you're given a bit of a degree of freedom, will try and make the absolute most of it. So that's, I guess, why there's this endless push and pull, because you get these clampdowns and then teams find new ways to do things and different things to target, which is why you get technical directives on this kind of thing on a relatively regular basis. Well, you know, I think, first of all, before we sort of look deeply at at, uh, what they're going to try and eliminate, if if we look at... But if you look at the basic sort of specification that you'd lay down for a, for a Formula One car, and these are all just simple rounded up numbers, you know, that you you come up with. Um, basically, you know, the, the centre of pressure, um, you want 40% of the downforce in the front, 60% on the rear, roughly. Again, as I said, they're all just rounded up figures in my head. Um, and you theoretically want that consistently. At all points in time, if you keep that, that centre of pressure the same, it would be okay. However, these cars tend to understeer low, medium speed corners and 
you want more front end in the low and medium speed corners. So you start off with this specification where you have the underfloor is producing, let's say, 60% of the overall downforce. The front and rear wing is producing the other 40%. And let's say we divide that equally. The front wing produces 20%, the rear wing produces 20%. So you've got this situation where as speed increases, the downforce increases at the square of the speed. So twice the speed, four times the downforce. Now, if everything was linear and just kept working, that would be all happily. You know, you, if the centre of pressure started off with the balance you've got it at 40-60, it would stay at 40-60. But that's not really what you want. You want it to be maybe 42-43% in the low and medium speed corners and 40-38% from in the high speed corners. So if you had a car that... that the underfloor and the and the front and rear wings reacted to the just the speed change. You would have a car that would be oversteering in the fast corners, or more understeering in the slow corners. So you want to end up with a with a situation because on top of that, you multiply up the fact that when the load increases, the car gets closer to the ground. When the car gets closer to the ground, it seals better, so the underfloor works better. So the underfloor is working more than the square of the speed don't quite exactly know what it is but it's, it's more than the square of the speed so whatever the center pressure shift is on the floor of the car it will be greater relative to the front and rear wings so it's a, it's a complex situation but if you could have a car that's got um, the center pressure of the underfloor at let's say 50 50 and the wings then at, you know front wing at 40 percent of the, um, the center pressure was moved forward uh, to 40% um, and uh, rearward 60%, you'd have a car that as it got faster, the centre pressure of the underfloor, which is the dominating component that makes the downforce, the centre pressure of that would move rearwards a little bit. So the car's centre pressure would move rearwards. But you won't get as much downforce out of the underfloor if you have that. It's better to have the throat of the underfloor further forward and lower as low as possible to begin with. So you end up with a situation that you... If you just pursue downforce, you end up with a situation that the underfloor's centre pressure is moving forward. And the only thing you got left to do then, whenever the driver's complaining about the rear being loose and, or oversteering in the fast corners, is to back off front wing. You get a lot of understeer low-speed corners then. So then you get, you get trick and you get yourself a front wing that basically withstands the loads up to, let's say, 150 kilometres an hour or something, um, and then backs off a bit. So you see the flaps backing off. That means at high speed, you've got a more stable rear end. At low speed, you've got more front end. And um, as I said, the center of pressure moves rearward because the wings are flexing. And that's what this, the, uh, the FIA technical directive is going to try and do. So if it was me who was actually setting the spec of the car, I would actually try to separate the underfloor from the wings. Um, because with these front wings now being as high as they are, um, they're not really critical to to um, ground clearance. They're not really in much ground effect. They do, but not much. So they will they will still produce more downforce as they get nearer to the ground. But they're very the right the height of the front end, the height of the front wing is actually very consistent because the rear of the car moves like twice as much as the front of the car. So it's it's pivoting around the front wheels. So as the rear's going down, front of the car's going down, the rear of the car's going down. The rear's going down further, so the front wing actually stays fairly stable. And that's that's what you want to try and achieve as well. So the front wing, ground clearance-wise, stays fairly stable. So I would try to get the uh, the underfloor centre pressure to be 50-50. Um, and as you lowered the car, the centre pressure, if anything, from the underfloor move, move rearward. Because that will give you stability in the high-speed corners. Because the car moves lower to the ground at high speed. And then your front and rear wing could be rigid components um, and keep that balance. But as I say, if you have the centre pressure of the underfloor too far forward, the only thing you have to get that, get rid of that low speed understeer and keep the stability in the rear end of the car at high speed is to get some mechanism for the front wing to, to back off. Well, what you said there is a wonderful example of the complexity of it and how it's not just a, a single thing that you're trying to achieve with it. But we should talk a little bit about this specific technical directive and what the FIA is clamping down on. So this technical directive number 18 is actually one that existed a couple of years ago, then fell out of circulation. It's been kind of reactivated, for want of a better word, with lots of stuff added because it 
tackled rear wing uh, flexibility before when it was first introduced, but then got integrated into the rules. And then there were reasons to to kind of reactivate it with lots of added bits. So, what exactly do we know about what this specific technical directive is tackling? Um, I think they're, what they're just doing is throwing out a piece of paper there to say there is a catch-all for this. You know, in this rigid body where everything should be rigid. So as opposed to just the the fact that there is X amount of load tests that go around the car on aerodynamic components, and if you pass the load test, you're okay. But, you know, there's there's two or three different ways. There's obviously using aerodynamic airflow separation problems. There's aerodynamic load chains that makes flexing happen. And there is design mechanisms that allow it to happen or even initiate it to happen. Some of the things that we used to do, not I'm saying not saying anybody would ever do these sort of things again, is you'd have a you know front wing flap that's carbon skin moulded. Um, it's moulded with the, the back edge not connected up as such. Um, and then it's put together with a flexible bonding, like you know, just like a silicon joint. Keeps it together quite happily, but it can they can slip on each other laterally and, and deflect. Um, there's just where you put the, the, the anchor, the pivot points, the anchorage of it, as far as where you want it to, the angle to rotate around. Um, so there's, there's design mechanisms that you can use to, to make things flex. Um, and there's also then trying to argue that point that well, these design mechanisms are there to stop them breaking because they don't flex. So, you know, it's a fine line. Um, if everything had to be rigid, I, would, I think we'd see a lot more failures just because you know, things can't bounce around. We, we see the front wings when the driver goes over the curb, you know, bouncing around dramatically on some cars. Um, that's you know, that's all okay. That's acceptable to a certain extent. It's when you get something like rotation in the wing, and the front wing, as I say, the front wing will back off when it rotates, or the flap mechanism rotates. Uh, the rear wing, if you backed it off, you obviously get rid of a little bit of drag, but you get rid of a lot of downforce as well. So I wouldn't have said that many of these cars currently would have a problem with the rear wing because the FIA, you'll you see on the rear wings these little white spots. And that is the, what the cameras focus on when the FIA are looking at them to see if there is any problems with flexing. So they, you know, they, have, they have a lot of data. The, the FIA have a lot more data than we see. Um, so it's one of those sort of situations where I think they're just sort of firing this technical directive out there and saying, look, you know, we, we don't like what we're seeing in some cases. Um, so we need to we need to think about it. And, you know, we see the onboard camera of the front wing flap assembly. We, the viewer, can see that they back off on most cars, but on some cars to a great, much, much greater degree. Now, you're going get, to always get something because of the load change. It's huge. But it is the degree, isn't it? It is the level of backing off. Now, the, the inboard end of the wing, the two little bits that are sort of mounted on the nose as such, that first 10 centimetres is the rigid thing that you're looking at. And then there's two little plates that slide on each other there to allow the flaps to bounce around a bit, I suppose you might call it. Going down the straight, if that flaps move, moves relative to that inboard mounted component, more than X, you know, you can measure it, more than X, then it should be illegal because that's, that's, a, that's a dynamic test, you know, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a truth, it's happening, it's real. And that's exactly what you want to do if you've got a car that basically sent their pressures too far forward from the underfloor because as the car builds up speed, the center pressure of the whole car will move forward dramatically. And the only tool you've got to try and fix that is the front wing angle and if you know if the car was oversteering all the time, you'd basically run less front wing. So you, you're getting less front wing at high speed because it's flexing. So you know, so it's not you don't have to be a rocket scientist to see this. It's just uh, it's in front of us all. But it's it is difficult to police. I have to say, it's very very difficult to police and, and make sure that people are allowing it to happen because it's better for the com- component failure, but not abusing the the regulation. As I say, I think that's why the FIA are firing this. TD18 out just to, hey, chaps, come on, let's play the game here. Yeah, exactly. And it is it is fairly wide ranging because they list various things that are going to be looked at and they're definitely not allowed about 
decoupled components that can kind of move around relative to each other as you referred to rotating relative to each other and any kind of elastometric phillips and that kind of thing all sorts of things that can change those uh, those characteristics and trying to make sure that everything is uniform across uh, so if you've got to say a front wing elements that its consistency and its flexibility across its whole length. You can have a certain amount of flexing and they'll allow whole assemblies to an extent to, to flex, but it's all those little clever things that you can integrate into it, all those things that you can do to get that effect that isn't perhaps covered by the existing regs. So it's sort of a one of those periodical curbs, doesn't it? Where they, they just curb a load of stuff and say, right, you can't do this, you can't do this. And then probably in a couple of years, the teams have worked out a load of other wa- ways they can achieve the objective and there'll have to be another one. Well, you know, that's the team's responsibility is to try to find if there is a grey area to try to get that grey area. Now, again, when the FAA did instigate these these load uh, tests, you know, that gives the teams something to work around. You know, you, as long as you pass that load test, what I would look very closely at is if anybody, as I say, has a de- design mechanism there that allows that flexure, i.e., you know, a preloaded spring assembly or a torsion spring or that's preloaded. You know, lots and lots of mechanisms could be could be generated. Um, you know, we talk about carbon materials and that that can flex at, at loader. Yeah, I'm sure they all exist. I don't. I don't think that's really a practical solution because whenever you see how much. Uh, how many wings, let's say, front wings the teams make, to get that consistency would be quite difficult if it's a material layup, um, a material layup that you're using to do it. Um, if it was a machine component that you're, you know, multi-axis, uh, then okay. But to do it in, a, in, a, in a, a variable layup, you know, just any overlaps, whatever, would, would be really, really difficult to police. I'm sure it could be done but it would move the, 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 the price of those components dramatically. And what you've got to see, see in, what I think, one of the questions later on is about damage to carbon fibre components and repairing it. You know, you can't afford to just fire new wings at it every time you get a little scratch in it or hit by a stone or, you know, a bit of debris. Um, you, you sometimes have to patch things up these days, which is great because that's, that's, that's real life. Um, the thing is, it's it's one of those, you know, how much benefit can you get? If you built a car that suits the characteristics that the, the, the weight of these cars and that the tires need, which is a car that has a center of pressure that shifts rearwards with speed without cheating anything, i.e. that the front wing can be as rigid as practical um, on the rear wing, on the floor sides, if that can all be real, um, then you have achieved the goal. If you get to the first test and suddenly the driver's moaning like mad about the fact that the car's around his ears in high-speed corners and you have to back off front wing and get rid of understeer, then you've got a problem and you've got to come up with solutions to it. And that's what—that's one of the solutions that you would come up with, allowing the front wing to back off. It's not, it's not a fix. It's a balance. It will keep, you know, keep the balance of the car better. And that's one of the things that you're looking for. You know, all of these teams could probably generate... I'd say, at the top of my head, 10% more downforce, but the car wouldn't be balanced. You'd, you'd have you'd have an unbalanced car. Balance is more important than actual downforce numbers. So, you know, in the pursuit of finding the, the speci- or, or chasing the specification of the car and how you would apply it, uh, the philosophy of the car, I suppose you might call it, um, you need to you need to do that from, from square one. You know, you need to start that, that the first day you start your research on the car, you need to know what you're trying to achieve. And it's a bit like, let's say, steering aerodynamics um, it has such a big influence because if a driver goes into a corner, turns the steering wheel, he has a little bit of understeer, he puts more steering lock on the car. If the fact that turning the steering wheel is losing you front down force, the minute he puts a little bit more steering lock on, it's worse. So that's the last thing you want. You know, you want that whenever you put the steering lock on, initially for the first two or three degrees, you don't want uh, much centre pressure shift, but if if the next three or four degrees, if it gets applied, you do want more centre pressure shift, and that will reduce the understeer in low speed corners because you get more steering lock on it by definition, and in high speed corners it will give you a stable rear end. So it's all a it's all a circle of events with the whole aerodynamic package trying to get it all to work together. But if you don't start with the the, the basic principles correct, and that to me is the underfloor that has 
a centre of pressure shift as the car gets closer to the ground, then then you're going to be chasing your tail. And obviously, people listening to this will be wondering if there could be some great controversy in Singapore with this. It's always possible, but as part of this process, teams have had to lodge all their design details of the front and rear wing and key floor bits with the FIA for them to have a look at in advance so they can see what's going on there. So a fair bit of that will be pre-approved. And in fact, this whole technical directive process, the technical directive was originally published as a draft, so you get feedback from teams and everything. The idea is to get a workable thing so everybody understands where the line is on flexibility of components and that kind of thing. But of course, no matter what the FIA technical department does, there's always the possibility of some kind of formal protest because they don't decide whether something's legal or not. They have an opinion on it and they can tell teams that, but if somebody protests whichever team, it then goes to the stewards and the stewards have to decide, which is an interesting uh, scenario. I mean, people will always say, why isn't the FI just zero tolerance on this? Just have an absolute black and white rule. But I guess it's just physics, isn't it? That makes it very, very difficult. You you can't have a black and white rule for this, although you kind of need one as there is, so you can apply it in situations where you feel people are going too far. So it's it's a very delicate balancing act, this whole policing business when it comes to flexible bodywork. It is a very difficult uh, balance tonight, but that, that's really why the FIA brought in the uh, the selection of load tests that does across the components, from, you know, rear wing, front wing, side of the floor and stuff. That you know, that's all okay, but you've got them defined. You've got the position defined. It's not just in general. Um, so it, it, you know, you've got to you got to identify a problem before you try and find a uh, make a decision whether it's it's good or bad, whether it's legal or not illegal. So. As I say, if I can sit and watch the TV and I see the front wing rotate and move at speed, which you can do, you know, you know the car's increasing speed as it's going down the straight and the front wing flaps moving relative to everything else she's looking at, then as I say, you don't have to be a brain surgeon to know it's moving somewhere. So you, you go and try and, you know, show that video to the team and say, could you just explain, you know, why this is happening and how, you know, what the mechanism is for it? Um, because that's real, you know. If Red Bull can see... Mercedes front wing or McLaren front wing or vice versa, you know, it's the same old deal. They can see it all. So if somebody has to protest because of it, then it's it's a bit it's a bit near the mark. Um, I think that the regulations, are, you know, you can't make it rigid. You can't make it rigid and you can't police being rigid. So because what, what, what part of the body work do you test? Where does rigidity, rigidity set in at? So I think it's a very, very fine line. Um, and I think all you can do is fire out the warning shot that we're going to look at this in more depth. And if if I was looking at front wings in Singapore um, going from slow speed to high speed and I saw the movement that I've seen so far this year on some cars, I'd hold them up if I was the FIA and say, here's a video chat, explain that one to me. Um, so we'll wait and see. It's always going to be difficult, but I'm I'm sure there will be some in-depth discussion everybody in the pit lane is hoping that well some people in the pit lane are hoping that red bull lose half a second a lap some people in the pit lane are hoping they lose two seconds a lap um but i would be surprised if it's not the other way around and that the the red bull actually gain a little bit because of it because you know it's one of those sort of situations where when i say watching on tv i haven't seen red bull contravene in the front wing flexing as much as some other teams so let's, I think, watch this space is the best way to uh, to talk about it. Yeah, well, it's bound to be a talking point this weekend. And we'll certainly be talking about it as the Singapore Grand Prix and the races after progress. You're listening to the Race F1 Tech Show, brought to you by Aramco. Aramco continuously push the limits of engineering excellence. As the global energy partner of F1, they drive a shared vision to real-world innovation that aims to lower emissions, enhance performance and accelerate human potential. Aramco, powered by HAL. Well, if you're listening to this podcast, you understand the value of asking questions. At Aramco, answering questions helps them engineer a better future. So if you'd like to know how something works in F1, please send us a question that we can answer on a future episode of this podcast. It can be on absolutely anything, F1 ancient or modern, or just some technical question you've always wanted to know the answer to. And my usual reminder is that there's no question too simple or too complicated for Gary to take on. You can send us a written email on podcasts at therace.com, or if you prefer, record a voice 
voice notes and send it to us, making sure you tell us who you are, and then we can play that in the show so everyone can hear your question. Our first question today is from Niklas from Malmo in Sweden, who says, I have a question regarding the engines each team has in their pool. Are they identical? Or do you have different tweaks for different track types? Could there be any potential in having slightly different strengths in the power units? Well, um, yes, it's a very, again, it's a somewhat grey area, I suppose you might call it. These engines have all been homologated at the the start of the year. And the big thing is that the only thing you can really change on the engine as the season progresses is for reliability reasons. Um, And it's a big argument about what is for reliability and what is for performance. So let's say if you started the season and you could, you know, the the engines can rev to 15,000 RPM, I believe, at this point in time. Um, So let's say, you know, you start the season off and you're just running, you know, 13,000, 13,500, something like that. Um, And it's because you think you've got a, you know, a valve system problem. As the season progresses... And you fix that reliability problem, and then you can go up to fourteen thousand, then you know, fourteen and a half, and then maybe fifteen thousand. So you're making the engine better um, as the season progresses. And as I say, it's the argument between the team or the engine builder um, and what the FAA accept as uh, as reliability. You know, you have to define the reliability, and that gets issued to all the other engine manufacturers as well. You have to define what you're trying to do to get reliability. So I have no doubt that as the season progresses, you will inc- you will improve the performance a little bit from engine to engine. And I think once again, you know, if you plan it correctly, and um, as we know, the two Ferraris put new engines in from Monza. I'm sure they were the best of the bunch. They were the best of the pile that they had. Um, so it's one of those sort of situations where yes, there will be improvements as the season goes along defined as reliability improvements but i wouldn't be surprised if those reliability improvements actually give you a little bit more power improvement and for monza you know it might just be a few revs that's all but you know an extra 200 revs or something could be of an advantage our next question comes from isaac carissa who says i'm curious to know how repairable and serviceable the wing elements are on modern f1 cars i often see eye-watering price tags attached to these parts but i can't believe teams would bin a two hundred thousand dollar front wing for a broken end plate no very few teams would bin a two hundred thousand dollar uh, front wing for that um there is repairs obviously it's it's one of those sort of fine lines because if it's just an end plate damage on the outboard end of the wing, then you know the the, the wing will go back in the mould and be all cleaned up. That end and the, you know, and a, a new part put onto it, a new end part plate put onto it, and, and blend it in as such. However, the, the the problem with that is you know for the big teams it all adds weight. Well, for every team it all adds weight. So it's a it's a it's a, a fine line between how damaged it is and uh, and and how much money you got left in the budget. So there's a fine line between. Um, introducing a development of the front wing at the same time as you've lost a couple of the old ones. You know, they're, they're all decisions that you'd make at time. I, I think front wing is, is maybe a little bit less than that. Um, a nose assembly, front wing, and all the flap arrangements, you know, at a maximum 200k, but I would say it's more like 120, 120k, something like that, £100,000, uh, because the, the wings are a lot, a lot simpler than they were a few years ago. But even still, that's a lot of money. Um, it's a, you know, a, a pretty good road car. I wouldn't mind one of them. But So every team will have a degree of acceptance for, um, for repairs. Most of the teams run with some ballast in the, in the front wing um, to, to, get the, to help the weight distribution, but not very much. It's, you know, you're talking maybe a couple of kilos. So most of the teams want the car to be down the weight limit, but sometimes you have to run a couple of kilos over the weight limit just to get the the weight distribution and the tire to help the tire degradation. So as long as you stay within that window of your front wing repairs and you can take some of that ballast out of the front wing um, and just have it there because you fixed the front wing, have the right weight distribution, then, then it'd be okay, it'd be acceptable. But once you get outside of that acceptance level, then I think that's when it will go in the bin. Just how far gone can a, a wing, a say a front wing, be in terms of being repairable without adding too much weight to it i guess if it's a proper full-on crunch with multiple bits broken that that's the point where you sling it in the skip but how, how far can you go i think i think as a as a sort of quick reference 
if it is a front wing end plate and it's you know the the outside um, the outside 10 centimeters of the wing where it all falls down to a fairly flat section then you'd have a pretty good go at, at uh, looking at fixing it um, because the end plate itself would be molded as a separate component so it'd be about repairing that bit of the wing and putting that that whole separate component onto it but if it's you know, if it's broken inboard of that bit, if it's broken 10 centimetres from the nose, then it's a bin job. You know, that you can't, the structure, you can't really get back to what you had. But the structure is, you know, that first, I don't know, 50, 50 centimetres, 60 centimetres, that's the, the structural part. And once you get into that area, you'd, you'd definitely put it in the bin. Outside of that area, you'd think about it. Um, but definitely if it's, you know, on the, on the last 10 centimetres out, out to the end plate, you'd you'd definitely have a go at fixing it. And given how much front wing damage there is over the course of an F1 season, it's mind-boggling how much is uh, is spent on that. It's just crazy why the you know the, we got all this stuff about outwashing, you know, just to move that front wing end plate, the overall width of the front wing, in by ten centimeters, you'd eliminate ninety nine point nine percent of the accident damage as we see, um, because you know the, the minute they're level with the outside of the front wheel. And whenever you turn the front wheel in a slow speed corner, the wing is the widest part at that front, you know, but, but until you get to the center line of the wheel. Why does somebody have some brain and just bring it in by 10 centimeters and say, okay, this is the way it is. There'll be less potential for outwash. There'll be less damage. There'll be less bits of carbon fiber on the track. You know, it's a positive for everybody. Um, so, so I don't understand. I don't understand some of these, some of the logic between the, between the regulations and, and car design. Yeah, you can't approach the regulations in F1 with common sense and logic. That's not the way to uh, to go with it. <laughs> yeah, but Ed, I'm just a basic Irishman, you know. Common sense has to come in somewhere. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Well, we'll uh, we'll set you on rewriting the regulations one day. I'm sure uh, that keep you uh, that'll keep you a bit too busy. I think in uh, in your retirement, so best not to do that. And our, our final question is from Jacob Woolen, who says, "I'm wondering how much in terms of Red Bull parts and design AlphaTauri would be legally able to use in next year's car." Um, well, it's all in the regulations as to how much you can do. Haas, to an extent, do the same thing, but. Um, I believe that Alpha Tori's connection to Red Bull it could be it could be a little bit more. You know, theoretically it can be the same. But it's, let's let's say that you're looking at running this year's Red Bull as an Alpha Tori next year. There's millions of pictures of the a Red Bull out there. So for you to sit down now and and design a you know a copy Red Bull, I suppose you might call it. You would, you would be able to do a lot of it, especially with the inside knowledge that you have of, of from Red Bull as well, to try to direct you a little bit on the objectives of the design. So I think you could have a Red Bull copy as an Alfa Tori car very easily. There might be subtle changes here and there, subtle differences that would just mean that it's a it's a new car that you've actually designed and you've actually built. It's it's not taking. You know, a Red Bull chassis, for example, or a Red Bull side pod, or a Red Bull underfloor, and apply it to your car. Obviously, they can take you know they can take the Red Bull engine, which is what they're doing, gearbox, rear suspension, rear uprights, front suspension, front uprights, steering rack. You know, the 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 it's endless the amount of parts you can take, but it's the, the things that hold all that together. And the most important thing about a, a car and its performance is the sort of the aerodynamic philosophy of the car, what, what you've set down to chase, that's what I was saying earlier about the centre of pressure shift, is what you've set down as your initial requirement from the car that's important. And if Alfa Tori could latch onto that down the pub one night over a couple of pints of Guinness with some of the Red Bull aerodynamists, well, you know, then that, that's all you need because you can achieve it in many, many different ways. It's just a matter of knowing what you want to achieve. You know, it's an interesting scenario, and I suspect it could become quite controversial because obviously the talk of uh, much of AlphaTauri moving to Milton Keynes, so it'll be in a building by Red Bull. Plus, they're going to use more of the of the parts because there's there is still plenty for them to go in terms of increasing that because they tend to get year old parts for a start. The Haas deal with Ferrari gives them latest spec parts as well, and if you want to very very broadly 
say it's split between you can take the mechanical parts, but aero parts you can't. There are a few other parts like the monocot you have to do yourself. But uh, it's going to be very interesting, isn't it, when we have the situation when an AlphaTauri hits the track that's maybe got as many Red Bull parts as they can throw at it, a similar aero concept. Now, that team's never gone full-on Red Bull clones, well, not since customer cars were outlawed. So that could be really controversial, couldn't it, if we get something that's visibly a... Uh, a Red Bull clone, because how do you know about the, the the aero information sharing in the way you say there? I'm not suggesting they do it, but you can't swap design data. And where where does that stop? Where's the where's the grey where's the grey area in the middle? So I can see that if AlphaTauri were to take a leap forward, could become problematic because at that at its best, that team could be a real problem among some of Red Bull's rivals. No, I think that last part there that you just say is is the is the big criteria you know if Alpha Tori languish around 15th 16th 14th or whatever qualifying next year with a with a red bull okay nobody will get too excited about it but if there's two red bulls and two alpha Tories in the front two rows of the grid then somebody will get excited about it and and that's going to be the interesting thing i suppose coming into next year i think you know and this is maybe wrong to say i think we'll see quite a lot of red bulls next year because I don't see any reason for not to see quite a lot of Red Bulls or derivatives of Red Bulls. Um, but as it's one of those sort of things where every team wants to stand on its own two feet somehow. And it depends on who's driving the team, whether it's the technical side or whether it's the pressure of the the management, I suppose you might call it. Um, and that's an interesting fact, you know. We've had the conversation many, many times about about why change stuff. And sometimes the people that don't actually know jump in and say, well, why doesn't our side puzzle look like a Red Bull? Or why doesn't our airbox intake look like a Ferrari or whatever? You know, and and sometimes it's easier to change things just because the pressure coming from the, the people that don't know than it is to allow it to happen from the people that, that theoretically do know. So that's uh, an interesting thing. And I think it'll be the ne- next year's case of Alpha Tori and Red Bull will be will be a, an interesting example of what you can do because the one thing that Red Bull have been good so far at is exploiting grey areas to the maximum, which is what you have to do if you're going to build a quick car. Um, but this is exploiting grey areas to a maximum in a different style as to what, how much you you hand over to your your sister, brother, twin team. I don't know what you like to call it. But it's, it's going to be definitely interesting next year. I would go for everything I could if I was at Alpha Tori now. Maybe not if I was Alpha Tori as a technical director, because I'd love to stand on my own two feet. But if I was Alpha Tori as a sort of maybe a you know a technical team principal ish, I would be dotting dotting the eyes and crossing the T's and every component that I could even have a sniff at. Yeah, and that certainly seems to be the direction that Alpha Tauri is being pushed now. So I think we will well, we definitely will see more of that next year. Well, thanks very much to everyone who sent in questions and thanks to you, Gary, for your excellent answers as always. And remember, if anyone has an F1 tech question, you can get it to us on podcasts at the-race.com. That's podcasts at the-race.com. We really do appreciate the questions you send and we read every single email, even if we don't always have the time to answer them on the podcast. That's all we've got time for in this episode and we'll be back in a couple of weeks with another edition. So stay with us for more from Gary. You've been listening to the Race F1 Tech Show brought to you by Aramco. Be sure to like, follow or subscribe on your favourite podcast app so you never miss an episode. The Athletic.